Okay, well, uh, sculpting is the art form of carving uh, something uh, from a piece of stone or metal or wood. Uh, you take this formless block of something and you turn it into this uh, beautiful piece of three-dimensional art. And sculpting has been around for thousands of years. Uh, there are some very famous sculptures. Uh, David by Michelangelo, uh, you recognize. Pieta also by Michelangelo across the top. Uh, down in the lower left corner, that is the Venus de Milo uh, by Alexandros of Antioch. Uh, then there's The Thinker by Rodin, very famous sculpture. And you may not even think of the Great Sphinx or the Statue of Liberty as, as great sculptures, but they, they are. They're great sculptures. Uh, and so uh, a sculptor has many tools that he can use to do his sculpting, depending on the kind of material that he's working on. They can range from the tiniest of knives and uh, you may have even seen sculptors use chainsaws to uh, sculpt out of uh, blocks of wood or blocks of ice. Uh, so sculpting is really difficult. It's, it's really a hard thing to do because it's what artists call subtractive art. Uh, you're actually cutting away from something that is actually there, removing material from the block of wood or stone. And that means the artist can't correct any mistakes. Once he chops it off, it's off, and you can't do anything about that. Uh, but other forms of art, like painting, for example, uh, that's called additive art, where you're putting something, adding something to the canvas, and you can always cover up mistakes uh, with more paint. So uh, a man uh, watched uh, a sculptor carve uh, an elephant out of a gigantic uh, piece of wood. And after he was done, he said to him, how do you do that? And the sculptor answered, well, it's pretty simple. I just look at the piece of wood, I think of an elephant, and I cut away everything that doesn't look like an elephant. <laughs> Easier said than done, right? Uh, but that is what the art of sculpting is. And so uh, the same is true of sanctification. Uh, sanctification is the process of becoming more like Christ over time uh, by the will, uh, by being obedient to the will of the Holy Spirit. And to continue the sculpting analogy, uh, our lives are like the block of wood, and we want to make them look as much like Christ as possible. And so the tools that we have are our own desire uh, and our willpower, uh, which is one thing, but then the greatest tool that we have, of course, is the power of the Holy Spirit. And so the actual sculpting uh, of ourselves into the image of Jesus Christ is making decisions by the power of the Holy Spirit uh, day by day, minute by minute, to conform ourselves to the will of the Holy Spirit, cutting away everything in our lives that doesn't look like Jesus Christ. So sanctification is both subtractive and it's additive because we are cutting away, on the one hand, everything that doesn't look like Jesus Christ, everything that is bad. That's the subtractive part of sanctification. But we also develop the character traits that are good, and that's the additive part of sanctification. Now, it took uh, Michelangelo two years to sculpt Pieta, and it took him four years to sculpt David. Uh, great works of art don't happen overnight. Uh, they take a long time to produce but eventually they are finished. Now, if we judge the difficulty of the work by the length of time that it takes, well, then the uh, work of sanctification is infinitely more difficult than sculpting even the Pieta or David because it takes a lifetime and it's never actually finished. Now, I've mentioned already that the essential tool in our toolbox for sanctification is the Holy Spirit. Sanctification is only possible if we possess the Holy Spirit because 
the power of the Holy Spirit is what makes us holy as we uh, continue to listen to his voice, as he guides us and teaches us what he would have for our lives. But we have to recognize that the presence of the Holy Spirit alone does not ensure sanctification. Uh, Unlike justification, uh, which is uh, solely the work of God, sanctification is a cooperative effort. It's a joint effort between us and the Holy Spirit. Uh, So we need to choose to cooperate with the Holy Spirit for sanctification to happen. And like I said last week, uh, every believer has received the Holy Spirit. That's Romans 8, 9. There are no exceptions. And that even though we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us, uh, it's not certain that sanctification will occur. So uh, last week we said that the test of knowing about whether we have the Holy Spirit is just to ask ourselves the simple question, uh, do I believe that Jesus Christ died for my sins and rose from the dead? And if the answer is yes, well then we have the Holy Spirit. And so this week there is another test. This week the the test uh, that we know that the Holy Spirit is living inside of us is uh, whether we are living according to the flesh or whether we are putting to death the deeds of the body. And to say it more simply, uh, really, are we continuing in sin or are we killing sin in our lives? That's the question. So we'll look at verses 12 and 13. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, for if you live according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So what we need to see here, first of all, is that we are debtors. Uh, We are debtors, uh, but we have to realize that the debt we owe is not to the flesh. Now, when we think about that, the idea about being uh, in debt, uh, that is what Paul is trying to convey here. And so uh, this this start of the verse here, so then, is kind of introductory uh, to what's coming, but it also takes us back to where we have been. Uh, Verses 12 and 13 are meant to be applicational uh, to the first 11 verses in uh, Romans chapter 8. And so Paul is always making a habit of balancing doctrine on the one hand and application on the other hand, because doctrine is great, of course, so we need proper, sound doctrine if we are going to understand the content of our faith. But we also have to apply that doctrine to our lives so that our lives are changed by it. And so doctrine should change the way that we live. And chapter 8 has been filled with doctrine to this point. Romans 8, 1, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's our justification. And then in verses 2 to 4, Paul talks about how it's not by obeying the law that we are saved, but it is because of the power of what Jesus did on the cross in his death and resurrection that saves us. And then in verses 5 to 8, Paul talks about how there are uh, unbelievers who will live according to the flesh, and then a true believer will live according to the Spirit. And he compared their two mindsets. The believer's mindset is set on things of the spirit. The unbeliever's mindset is set on the things of the flesh. And then in verses 9 to 11, Paul says, you have the Holy Spirit if the Holy Spirit lives in you. And in verses 10 and 11, it's uh, he will raise your spirit uh, to life and he will raise your mortal bodies to life. And so that is a whole lot of doctrine that Paul has laid on them in the first 11 verses. And so now, a little bit of application. How are we supposed to live our lives in light of these tremendous truths that Paul has given us so far? 
And so Paul wanted them to recognize that their salvation created an obligation for them. The Greek word uh, for obligation actually means debtor. Uh, they are debtors. So think about how we become debtors. Uh, usually, uh, we've taken out a loan, right? And we have some kind of financial obligation now to repay that loan. <clears throat> but sometimes the obligation is not financial, but rather moral. Uh, somebody has done a favor for us, and they expect that if they need a favor, we'll reciprocate. Uh, that's a, a moral obligation to repay something. Uh, maybe somebody did a, a kindness to us, and we want to pay that kindness forward to somebody else. Uh, that's an obligation. Uh, that is a debt. Uh, Paul, in Romans chapter 1, called himself a debtor uh, because, remember, he had been appointed by God as the, apostles to the, to the apostle to the Gentiles. He said, I am a debtor to Greeks and to barbarians to preach the gospel. So he was a debtor because God had given him this commission, and now Paul had to go out and fulfill it. <clears throat> so this, this sense of the word debtor uh, really means that we should do what we ought to do in light of the things that God has done for us, and not necessarily what we might want to do that would be pleasing to ourselves. And so that's why Paul says in Romans uh, eight twelve that we are debtors, but not to the flesh. Now, remember what the flesh is. The flesh is, is Paul's way of talking about how we live our lives for our own sinful pleasures. Uh, by obeying the, the, the sinful desires of our flesh, that's what Paul calls being in <coughs> the flesh. And so uh, there are lots of ways that we can be in the flesh, but we are not debtors are in debt to the flesh. And the reason we're not indebted to the flesh is because the flesh has never done anything for us. Uh, the flesh does nothing except get us in trouble, cause us to sin, uh, and ruin our lives in, in many ways. <clears throat> so everything that we do in the flesh is sin. And as we've seen already in Romans, the penalty for sin is death. Now, the sins that we habitually commit have lots of consequences. Uh, drunkenness, for example, leads to bad decisions like drinking and driving, or uh, maybe we'll even kill somebody behind the wheel of a car because we've had too much to drink, or uh, we're abusive when we get drunk. Uh, those kinds of things happen. You can, you can habitually uh, show up late for work because of drunkenness and lose your job. You might flirt with somebody in the office, and that leads to adultery, which costs you your wife and your family. Uh, the desire for stuff that we can't afford causes us to steal or rack up tons of debt that, uh, that we don't need, and the list could go on and on. But the point is that <clears throat> sin serves the flesh rather than God. And when we sin, we are choosing immediate gratification over doing things God, God's way. And our sins damage our relationship with God and with other people. So how could we ever become a debtor to our own flesh? We can't because nothing good ever comes from being in the flesh. It's only bad things that come from being in the flesh. And so the flesh would never have a right to say, you are under obligation to me for all these things I've done for you because the flesh has never done anything for us. And so we have died to sin. Uh, how shall we continue to live in it? So the debt we owe is not to the flesh. The debt we owe is to God. We don't uh, owe the flesh anything. We don't serve its whims. We don't serve its sinful desires. But we are indebted to God to do what we ought to do in light of what God has done from us, for us, since God has rescued us from the law of sin and death. 
Now, the law of sin and death says that because we have fallen short of God's standards, uh, fallen short of his glory, well, we deserve eternal punishment and separation from him. But the law of the spirit of life in Christ overcomes the law of sin and death. And so by his grace, we receive salvation and we get justification. We get the Holy Spirit instead of the condemnation we deserve when we believe in Christ as our Savior. And so the debt we owe to God can't be repaid, right? Salvation is a gift. It's given to us. So uh, that's grace. And, and so we shouldn't be thinking about repayment of a debt in, in, in terms of uh, repaying God for our salvation. That can't be done. But our obligation or our debt is to live according to his will, uh, to do what we ought to do, uh, to cut away and carve away everything that doesn't look like Jesus Christ in our lives, and then to add things that do look like Jesus Christ. And so we pay this debt by listening to the voice of the Holy Spirit, because God is not asking us to do anything that he doesn't also empower us to do by giving us the Holy Spirit. So we can do what we ought to do by the power of the Spirit. He equips us to sin less and he encourages us to add the things that are in keeping with his will to develop more Christ-like character. Now, this concept of being a debtor uh, is difficult for Christians. It, it doesn't comport with our idea of, of grace being a free gift. The idea of, of being a debtor is a little difficult. Uh, think about it, if we're, if we're thinking about it in terms of financial, uh, if you have a lot of credit card debt or student loan debt or a massive mortgage payment each month, uh, you know the pain of financial debt. And so we don't want to think about the Christian life as a life of being saddled with debt that we can never repay. That's not what it is. Uh, God's grace is a free gift. We can't pay for it. We can't earn it. And once God gives it to us, he never takes it away. So don't think about it like trying to repay a debt. Uh, think about it like you were walking near the edge of a cliff and you slipped and you nearly fell off the cliff and into the ravine uh, to certain death, but God saved you from that, and he picked you up and put your feet back on solid ground. And hopefully you realize that walking along the edge of a cliff is reckless and it's dangerous, and you could easily die by doing that. Now, after God rescues you from that, you're not going to go right back to the edge of the cliff and walk along that same cliff again, I hope. <clears throat> and when God saves us from our sin, the last thing we should do is go right back to the sin that nearly killed us in the first place. We do what we ought to do. We do what a wise person does. We stay as far away from our sin as we can and stay along the path that God has for us, the path that God leads us on. That's what we're under obligation to do. And so uh, the debt we owe is to God. The debt we, uh, we do not owe that debt to the flesh. And now there are uh, choices that we make. As I said, sanctification is a choice that we make to cooperate with the Holy Spirit. And so there are two choices that we can make. And the first one is to keep sinning and die, right? We see that in the beginning of verse 13. If you live according to the flesh, you must die. Now, uh, verse 13 is pretty difficult uh, because, remember, Paul is writing to believers. Romans 8.1, he says, uh, therefore, uh, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then in the beginning of verse 12, he calls them brethren, which is a term that he uses, you know, talking about people who are fe fellow brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. And so how can Paul uh, tell, tell believers that if you live according to the flesh, you will die? That seems incongruous. Well, 
perhaps on one level, uh, Paul was talking to the unbelievers uh, that would be reading his letter. Uh, most churches, uh, hopefully not this one, but most churches have at least one or two unbelievers uh, in the church, and they're coming because they are either seeking or out of habit, or they, ha they get their social relationships uh, from being in church, but they're not actually saved. And there are other uh, Christian or, or people in the church who actually believe that they are saved and yet somehow uh, don't have saving faith. Uh, just like in the Sermon on the Mount when uh, Jesus talked about how many people would say, Lord, Lord, did I not uh, do miracles in your name and cast out many demons in your name? And Jesus said to them, depart from me, you evildoers. I never knew you. So uh, there are unbelievers uh, that might have been reading Paul's letter. And to these unbelievers, Paul said, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. And that's, to an unbeliever, spiritual death, eternal separation from God. But it's also possible that Paul was writing to these believers uh, and to the, to the believers who are, were continuing to live a life of sin. Uh, there are people, as you know, who make a profession of faith, uh, but they don't stop sinning. There's no life change. Uh, and that's pretty hard to, to, to fathom. When, when Christ does such amazing things for us, it should spark a life change. Uh, but it happens. Uh, Paul talked about people like this in, in 1 Corinthians 3. We call them carnal Christians. He was trying to give them meat, but they weren't ready for it uh, because they were chasing after this and chasing after that. Uh, so a carnal Christian... Well, to people like that, if they were actually believers, Paul wouldn't be talking about spiritual death, the eternal separation from God, but he would be talking about a dying, an unfruitful a Christian walk because it's hampered by sin. And that's what happens when a believer refuses to change his sinful lifestyle. And so again, we have to understand that, that sanctification is a choice, uh, choice by choice, decision by decision, uh, minute by minute, day by day, to obey the Holy Spirit rather than the flesh. And we do this by constantly examining our own lives. We, we have to search ourselves, and we have to ask the Holy Spirit to search us too. Uh, we tend to be creatures of habit. We have our own besetting sins that we uh, habitually commit. We tend to like them. They're comfortable for us, and we don't really even think about uh, trying to put those sins to death in our lives. So uh, maybe we have a problem with gossip, and we just can't help it. We, we, we talk about people, and we wouldn't even know how to fill our time if we weren't talking uh, to people about other people. We can't stop doing it. Uh, maybe our problem is too much food, too much drink, uh, too much foul language, too much internet pornography, whatever the sin happens to be, uh, it's, it's not over just because we are saved, right? That is Paul's struggle in Romans chapter 7. The, the good that I want to do, I, I don't do it, but, but the evil that I don't want to do, this I continue to do. And so the struggle doesn't end when we become believers. There is still this sin nature that lives in us that wants to serve self and uh, so sanctification is this, this daily battle trying to kill sin in our lives. So uh, when, we, when we are trying to kill sin, there are a few steps that we can take to try to do that. And the first is simply to recognize uh, that this sin exists in us. Ask the Holy Spirit to illuminate it in us, to show it to us, uh, and ask him if there's anything in our lives that is uh, displeasing to him and to God. 
you know that the first step in an Alcoholics Anonymous program is to admit that you're an alcoholic because change doesn't happen until we admit and recognize uh, that we have a problem and then we can go about changing it. Change won't happen until we recognize the problem. And so uh, we recognize the problem, we identify it, and then we ask the Holy Spirit to give us this desire uh, that we need to, to cut this sin out of our lives. Uh, the power of the Holy Spirit is critical to this. Now, we have to have the power of the Holy Spirit to make this work. Uh, I'm a runner, as you know. Some of you are runners, too. Uh, and when you run, uh, your brain releases this chemical called endorphins. Uh, and endorphins are an amazing thing. They can make you feel like you can take on the world, like you can conquer the world. When, when I'm running and I, and I feel good, which is you know, not all that often, uh, I, I run and I feel like, man, I have so much that I can do today. I'm going to get this done and get that done, and I'm going to do all this great stuff. It's these endorphins that are working in me, that are empowering me to, to think that I can do all of these great things, and they produce what's called this runner's high. Uh, and the runner's high has actually been documented by medical science. It's, it's an actual thing. Uh, but the problem is that I can't keep running forever, right? Like Forrest Gump, back and, cross, back and forth across the country. I have to stop running. Uh, and so when I stop running, the endorphins eventually subside and my brain returns to its normal function, or at least as normal as my brain functions. Uh, and so that's what happens with endorphins. But the Holy Spirit is always there. He's always present. He can be uh, obeyed and, and listened to, and, and you can take guidance and teaching from him all the time, not like endorphins that are going to go away. The Holy Spirit is always there. So ask the Holy Spirit to give you this desire to cut that sin out of your life. And then once you've identified the sin and you've asked the Holy Spirit to help you, then the last step is to actually do it. It's our choice, minute by minute. We make decisions day by day to cut sin out of our lives, and it's a constant battle, but with the Holy Spirit's help, we can do it. Now, we as believers, we don't have to worry about losing our salvation when we fail. We can never lose our salvation. But believers can grieve the Holy Spirit, and we do that when we live in habitual sin, even though our salvation is secure. But what do we lose? It damages our walk and it damages our witness when we don't kill the sin that's in our lives. And if believers don't kill sin, it has a way of creeping further and further into our lives, into taking over our lives at certain points. And that's going to bring God's discipline oftentimes and certainly interrupts fellowship with him because it's impossible to serve sin and to serve God at the same time. A life of service to sin is going to have an effect on our walk with God. And that's what Paul meant for believers when he said, if we don't kill the deeds of the flesh, we will die. For the believer, it's not spiritual death like it is for the unbeliever, but it is a life of a feeble service, unproductive lives, and lives that will bear little fruit. So we have to make this decision to kill sin. And so the outcome is completely different if we decide to serve the Spirit rather than serving the flesh. So the first choice, keep sinning and die. The second choice, stop sinning and live. Paul's been talking about this since chapter 6, right? Consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to Christ. And a Christian who is growing in faith, who is submissive to the Holy Spirit, will hate his sin. And he will live a life or seek to live a life that pleases God. 
And as Christians, we are under this holy obligation to do what we ought to do because of what God has done for us. Now, this doesn't mean that we are saved by works. We're not saved because we put to death the deeds of the flesh. We're saved by grace, and we can't lose that salvation, but by putting to death the deeds of the flesh, by killing sin in our lives, we have a better witness and a better walk and better fellowship with God. So a true believer should never be content with his sin. A true believer should always want to identify sin and cut it out of our lives. But what we see even in the church, is that some people are content in their sin and they don't want or have not ever made any effort uh, to kill it. And it can happen in any church. It can happen in our church. True believers show that they are saved by the things that they do. That's what James said when he meant faith without works is dead. Well, uh, to live this life, to, to stop sinning and to live means to live a productive and fruitful Christian life. Uh, studies show uh, that when you are giving, when you are volunteering, when you're feeling like you're fulfilling your purpose, when you're feeling a sense of accomplishment, when you're helping others, uh, this brings great joy and peace and comfort in our lives, almost like uh, the runner's high that I talked about earlier. So living means doing the things that will bring you real joy as you serve the Lord. And so uh, real joy doesn't come from serving self. It, it, it comes from serving others and by serving God. And uh, this runner's high, this sense of peace, uh, contentment can also be produced by laughter. So hang out with your Christian friends, have a good time, uh, enjoy each other. That's what real living is. Jesus said, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And this is the abundant life <clears throat> that comes <clears throat> when we stop sinning and we start to live. Uh, so we live in the sense of enjoying our lives, being productive, bearing fruit for God, and just living a life that is pleasing to him. Uh, sin drags us down. It destroys our fellowship with God and each other. And those barriers that exist when we live a life of sin makes it impossible to live a dynamic and fruitful Christian life. And so a believer who is killing sin is going to live a vibrant and vigorous Christian life. And so we have two choices, live according to the flesh and die, or uh, live or, or kill sin in your life and live. And I'm assuming that for all of us, we want option two. And so uh, how, are we, how are we going to do this? Aside from the things that I talked about earlier, the one thing we really need to do is to resolve to kill sin in our lives. And we do that by taking responsibility for the sin that is in our lives. It's our sin. We are the ones who have to take care of it, to deal with it. Uh, the word for uh, putting to death in the Greek is uh, in the active present tense. It means uh, that it is repeated and continuous action and so the obligation is ongoing, this obligation to kill sin. It, it's our responsibility to kill it. No one else is going to kill sin for us. And the Holy Spirit can't do it if we won't cooperate. So it's true that we can't do it apart from the power of the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit only empowers us to kill the sin. It doesn't accomplish the killing of sin unless we work to do it. It requires our active involvement. We have to decide to put sin to death. So killing sin is a decision and an action, and we have to recognize these sins in our lives and say, no more, I am dead to that sin, I will serve it no longer, I will not commit that sin again. 
before the Holy Spirit came, we were powerless to do anything about the sin in our lives. Our minds were set on the things of the flesh. They were hostile to God. They would not be subject to God, and in fact, could not be subject to God because of the lack of the Holy Spirit. But the presence of the Holy Spirit has changed all of that for us. Because of his presence, we can set our minds on the things of the Spirit, and we can subject ourselves to obey the will of God, and we can please him by our behavior, and we can become more like Jesus Christ and do his will for our lives. So we have an obligation to kill the sin that would have killed us if God had not saved us from it. So resolve to kill sin in your life. Take responsibility for your life. Resolve to burn brightly for Christ. A campfire needs wood and oxygen uh, to burn brightly. Uh, If you have a campfire with lots of dry wood that's spaced properly so that the oxygen can get in there, you're going to have a big, bright fire that burns magnificently in blue and yellow and orange colored flames. Uh, and it'll keep you warm, and it's very powerful. But if you take away the wood and you take away the oxygen, in an hour, all that is going to be left is dying embers. They're both campfires, but one is really hot, really burns bright, and the other one is smoldering and dying out. So think of our spiritual lives like a campfire. If we allow sin to live and reign in our lives, the fire within us is going to die. The wood and oxygen that we need to live this vital life is the power of the Holy Spirit and the desire to make changes as we cooperate with the Holy Spirit. And if we do that, we will burn brightly for the Lord. God poured his love into our hearts and we receive his love through the Holy Spirit that was poured into our hearts. And so we now have distinguished company living in our house, right? The Holy Spirit lives inside of us. And so that's all the power we need to be saved and to live this life that is pleasing to God. So let's make the Holy Spirit feel at home. He's not at home in shabby digs. He's at home in pure hearts and minds and bodies. And so we should be examining our lives, a cutting out sin like the sculptor who carves out everything that doesn't look like the thing that he's carving. And when we kill sin in our lives, we are chipping away at everything that the Holy Spirit hates. And we have to cut away everything in our lives that doesn't look holy and develop character that is holy. And that is called living a sculpted life. For a believer, salvation is not at stake, but a dynamic and fruitful Christian life is. And so if we cut out the bad and add the good, we will live, we will truly live this abundant life that God has for us. And that's what sanctification is. It's good, and that's why God wants it for us. And it's all available to us because of the Holy Spirit, because Jesus died on the cross for our sins, and when we believed in him for our salvation, we received the Holy Spirit so that we might live for him. So let's get busy living this abundant life that Christ has for us. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you for this word. I thank you for everything that you have been teaching us in Romans chapter 8. Lord, I thank you for these encouraging words, uh, Lord, that we may stop sinning and live, that we might truly live uh, the abundant life that you have for us, Lord. I pray that we would be attuned to the Holy Spirit, that we would listen to his will, that we would obey his will, Lord, and that we might live lives that would be truly pleasing to you and attractive to others so that they might know the knowledge and the joy of your salvation. 
We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.